0: The Askell Leadership Podcast. Welcome to the Askell Trust Leadership Podcast. My name is Rob Robson, and I am the Askell Trust Leadership Consultant. For this session, I'm delighted to welcome Dame Alison Peacock. In some ways, Alison does not need an introduction, since she's a nationally well-known figure as the CEO of the Chartered College of Teaching. But it was fantastic to welcome her to our podcast, and for her to give us a little time in her incredibly busy schedule. I am of course going to introduce Alison because it'd be rude not to, but there is a huge amount to say about her massively successful career and the contribution that she's made in education. I suspect Alison doesn't actually know this, but we were head teachers in the same local authority for a few years where Alison was flying at the time. Alison's one of those teachers and leaders who are rare in education, in that she's worked and led in both the primary and secondary systems. She took a single form primary school in special measures, and within two and a half years, it was rated outstanding by Ofsted. But for me, the most impressive part of her journey was the establishment of the Roxham Foundation, with its learning without limits, inclusive, creative approach to school improvement. It is fascinating in this podcast to hear Alison talk about that journey and how the lives of young children at the school were improved immeasurably, but not using a rather formulaic approach, but having the courage to do things differently. As you can imagine, her work at Roxon and subsequently, has meant that she has had a number of educational research publications and books, including in the areas of inclusion, people voice, and one of my favourite pieces of work, because it was led by one of my very favourite people, Professor Donald McIntyre, looking at classroom practice and pedagogical approaches. Alison has been the recipient of a number of honours, including the DBE for Services to Education, an honorary doctorate from the University of Brighton, and she is one of the very first female honorary fellows of Queen's College, Cambridge. So welcome, Alison. It's great to have you here. Please do start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Yes, of course. So I've been thinking uh, this morning, I've just been talking to somebody about assessment and all of the issues around assessment. And I think for me, a driving part of what I've done as a teacher and a head teacher and now doing is around, You know, I'm really moved by the need for greater social justice. So all of the work that I did as a teacher, as I was researched, my classroom was researched for Learning Without Limits with the University of Cambridge. I wrote about that with a research team whilst I was a head teacher. All of this work is based around the premise that things can always be better than they are, that we need to do more to uh, be inclusive, that we need to make sure constantly that we're not being driven by kind of unseen forces, if you like, like um, a sense of class or status, that that if you don't stop and think about these things, uh, they can really influence one's decisions uh, as as a teacher and as a leader and so on. So really trying to kind of strip some of that back and see what goes on. And those kinds of, uh, you know, that kind of core purpose goes beyond just what am I going to teach today with my class? There's always been something in me right from the very first days when I first started teaching about trying to make sure that everybody had a chance, trying not to write anybody off. um, Trying to find a way through for the youngster that didn't seem to be able to understand, you know, trying not to make assumptions about all children being the same. And then also wanting, I can remember my first ever parents evening that I did when I was a secondary teacher. And really wanting to connect with every one of those parents and tr- try and help them feel reassured that I knew their child and I was doing my best to support their child in their learning because every parent wants their teachers to, to 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 behave like that I guess so that's been right at the heart of everything so you know I've spoken in lots of in lots of places about the fact that I've worked in secondary I've worked in primary I've worked with advisors <laughs> so I've became a head teacher of a school that was in special measures you know people are probably fed up of hearing those stories but underneath all of it is the constant factor of wanting to make teaching better for teachers but also really importantly of course for children and for communities and the work I'm now doing at the Chartered College brings all of that together. Of course it does. The the, the better our teachers, the better the the life chances for our youngsters, the more that teachers are respected and understood by wider society, the greater the chance they have to make the difference they need to make. So yeah, it might sound a bit noble, but essentially these are the things that that have driven me all the way
0: through. Okay, and I think that those I'm not sure that noble's a problem is it um that's okay I think that's okay to have a a driving purpose behind your career and your life can we just go back to you taking on a school as a head teacher that was in special measures because some people might consider that not to be the smartest thing on earth in terms of a career but it clearly hasn't damaged yours
1: (laughs) well yes exactly so so it was the second it was a primary school the second headship interview that I had so the first one Uh, I went for the interview and tellingly when they phoned me to tell me I hadn't got the job I was kind of relieved so that tells you everything really doesn't it and the second one I went to look around was the school where I was subsequently appointed and that was a school essentially it was a school where hope had been lost and I can draw lots of parallels now this sounds quite dramatic but I can I can draw parallels between the feeling I had when I looked around that school and thought maybe there's something I could do here. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but maybe it was kind of a a sense of needing to do something to make it better. And I can draw a parallel in my mind with moving from that school when it became very well known. And and, we'd done a lot in that school and it's achieved a lot to moving to the chartered college and thinking, here's here's something I could do that could really make a difference to our profession that could really make a difference um, on a broader scale which I'd been trying to do from the position of being a head teacher so I went to that school it was in special measures I told the governors in the first well I went when I went to the interview that um, under my leadership they said to me what you know what where will this school be in three years time if we appoint you and I said you know that the aim would be for this school to uh, become a centre of excellence and given that it had been in special measures for three years and was at the lowest possible point on the league tables uh, that was kind of a bit of a I'm sure some of them thought well bless what's she talking about you know this is a bit of a flight of fancy but having a really clear vision for what you are setting out to achieve for me means that you're you've got a clarity about what you're trying to do which means that you can bring people with you along the way because some of the decisions you will take as a leader are multiple and micro in their kind of intensity but they all build together around they all coalesce around what's your purpose why are you doing this what's your vision and if you're not clear what your vision is every one of those micro decisions has the potential to pull apart from another one as opposed to alignment which I feel is fundamental to being able to do what essentially is an impossible job which is leading one school leading a group of schools leading the charter college everything that you do needs to be aligned with core purposes because then everything amplifies everything else And even when you're in the moment trying, you make decisions and you're trying to do it, quite often it feels intuitive and you're not necessarily referring back to your core purposes overtly. If you believe deeply in what you're doing, then naturally those things will align. And that for me is the most fundamental part of leadership, is knowing not only what you're doing, but why you're doing it and everything then reinforces everything else. And when you face a period of challenge, which inevitably, one always does. However good things are today, there's always the potential <laughs> for something to happen tomorrow. That really stands you in good stead because it's when you're really challenged in terms of what's the decision I need to take that you can be supported by referring back to why is it that I'm doing this? What are the things that we've set out to do? If we take this decision, will this impact positively on those goals or will it detract from them? Is it a distraction? Is it, is it taking me away from what I've said we're going to do? Yeah, that's pretty much held me strong all the way through, I think, in terms of what I'm trying to do.
0: So one of the things I noticed when you were talking about that, um, about the, OK, so this is where the school's going to go, is you used the, the term centre of excellence rather than the term Ofsted outstanding. What, what was the reason that you didn't, given that the school was in an Ofsted grade four, inadequate, um, why didn't you use the Ofsted measurement as, well, as a measure of success?
1: Well, the reason is <laughs> I've never, I haven't been driven by Ofsted being the gold standard. For me, the gold standard was about. So I was working with academics, okay, from the University of Cambridge, uh, and I was more worried about impressing them and bringing to life all of the theory and values and research and thinking that I had done about how children learn and um, what's necessary for a childhood that, it, that enables you to flourish as an individual. Now, all of those things, in, you know, and included within that, of course, are you know high levels of um, attainment and achievement, but that sense of flourishing as, as a person for me, is a, is a higher set of aims than getting a judgment on the school related to which category we were in. Clearly, I was delighted when the school became outstanding. It was outstanding within three years of, of my leadership. That wasn't something that, that was down to me. That was down to that collective endeavour, all of us working together. But it was driven by that vision that I've talked about. And obviously, as the leader of the school, I was, I was wanting that vision to be real. So you no, know, obviously getting that that accolade, if you like, was part of the journey, but for me, the real journey was that that much broader one we never we were never a school that had a big banner outside saying we were outstanding. We were never a school that rubbed other schools' faces in it, if you know what I mean, we wanted to work in partnership, and exactly at that point, this was before. Academization, it was uh, at a time when people started talking about things like sort of soft kind of federations and so on at that time um, in the town where my school was there was um, a school closure that was imminent and we'd started a group of head teachers we were working together we were working with a local authority at the time we got um, some money to start to think about our leadership in each of our schools we were sharing development plans we were visiting each other's schools you know this was really quite forward thinking way before you know the 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 most recent view of of, um uh, multi-academy trusts and so on so for me it was much less important that that our school had got that label what was much much more important was how can we work as a community across our group of schools how can we learn from each other And if you like, it kind of means that you've sort of staved off that kind of wolf at the door the the kind of having to look over your shoulder and think someone's coming to make a judgment. It was just useful that they'd gone away and that they'd been happy. It was very useful because it took us on the next step. And uh, mind you, they kept coming back, Rob, I have to say. Uh, So I had, in the period of time when I was a head teacher, there were nine inspections from Ofsted. Um, Three before we became out of special measures and then... Subsequently, they judged. They did a whole school inspection three times in my headship. Three times we were judged to be outstanding. But each time they came, I was kind of terrified that maybe we weren't going to achieve that again. You know, just how awful would that have been? And I wouldn't be talking to you now, actually, if any one of those had had gone a different way, I would have bowed out. This is how. This is how much. This is. It's such high stakes in our system. And when I talk to. HMCI about this her view is well nobody needs to be worried if they've got nothing to hide but actually the whole point of being a teacher is that you've always you've always got a kind of better version of everything that you've done didn't quite go in the way that you wanted it to so there's always kind of like oh well we got this but they just because they didn't see this you know so from my point of view there was a degree of getting away with it which I always kind of felt after they'd gone I was always so delighted that thank goodness you know we've got away with it again isn't that good now we can carry on So they they really can be. I think the personally, I think the accountability system is far too influential on everything that goes on in our schools. We need we need to pare it back. We absolutely do, because otherwise it 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 can just drive you to distraction. And I can think of a school down the road from where I was teaching, where the minute they got. Um, an Ofsted judgment of good, almost the next day, they were then striving to become outstanding. You know, they're right, this is what we've got to do now to become outstanding. And you feel like, oh my goodness me, you know what? This is relentless. So that center of excellence point, I think, a center of excellence not necessarily pinpointed just on your school, but in working in partnership with others. And we subsequently became a teaching school. And exactly what we were doing there was, what can we do to raise everybody up rather than point out you know failings it's about everybody's collective success that's I feel that's where the energy needs to be.
0: Did you feel by the time you left did you feel you you, you were a centre of excellence or was that still something you were still striving towards?
1: Well if a centre of excellence could be determined by do you have coach loads of teachers coming internationally into your car park to meet your children and look around then yes. (laughs) We were leading the way for a while because we weren't assessing using national curriculum levels we had other methodologies that we were using the standards were high the children were joyful the retention rates of teachers were excellent and we were doing all kinds of things in the school that were kind of examples of why not you know so we were one of the first advocates of forest school for example we used our environment we we had a lovely environment in the school but we used the environment to make sure that the children were aware of you know, we had chickens, we had gardens, you know, we were doing all kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, famously, we, we bought a double-decker bus on eBay because it was another space that we could use. And we... So the, the, the kind of sense of the art of the possible was very much part of the school. We, we were award-winning for um, creativity and so on, it became a school of creativity. So th- there was clearly a lot of recognition that was being given. And, and I was, I mean, I again, this is part of sort of who I am really as a teacher, because even when I was in my job as an NQT in my first school, and it was a, it was a tough school, Passmore's um, Comprehensive in Harlow, even when I was an NQT, I, I said I wanted to work with a local primary school, and I would go and teach drama during the lunchtimes to... Um, year sixes with a view to trying to support transition so there's always been a kind of energy around wanting to work collaboratively wanting to give the children a sense of look what you're doing that other people will notice it's, it genuinely is not about me it's genuinely about what can we do to buoy up the community so that so that people feel like oh gosh look now we can try something else, that, that was good, it, people noticed this and they were supported and they were helped and they were inspired, that's, that's a kind of, a way of leading by example that is, that is about buoying other people up, is essentially what I, I find really motivating, that's why I do what I do.
0: Can we just go back to that point about partnership being energetic, energetic for who, energetic for you or energetic for other people as well?
1: So partnership being energetic, uh, well, that's interesting, is then Why have I said that? I think it's because what happens typically when you get a group of people together and you sort of begin to say what might be possible, people are very energised by the idea that they can do something differently, that they are going to gain some affirmation from working together. And it sort of takes them beyond where they currently are. So if I think about one of those first partnership events we had, we uh, we were all gathered together in one of the schools and teachers from each of the schools were there. So I don't know, there probably about three teachers from each school came along. And together with the head teacher of that particular school, I remember we were talking with the, with the teachers in the room and saying, okay, we really want to focus, our focus is on improving writing across this group of schools. What are the kinds of things that we might be able to do together? And then... groups all kind of started talking and they came up with all kinds of ideas and none of those ideas were off the table so none of those ideas were kind of like well actually we'd already really decided that we were going to do it in this particular way so that meant that the teachers kind of really began to think oh well how might this work and one of the ideas that, that subsequently some of the teachers then traveled to Birmingham to share was around uh, setting up a radio station they were saying the more that children are able to talk for a purpose and build their confidence in talking the the hypothesis was the more likely they are to be able to write coherently because if you can speak coherently you need to be able to do that first and so through the medium of something like establishing a radio station how brilliant would that be as a kind of really motivating thing to do something that could happen at lunchtime something that might be able to happen in the last 15 minutes of the day Could they broadcast to all the classrooms in the school? How would it work? All this kind of thing. So a group of about three schools all started working on this. And there was just a genuine sense of excitement around it. And and also, it's really important with these things that you then make sure they come to fruition. So we did set up a radio station. We did work with the BBC. We subsequently moved that radio station to the bus and it broadcast out onto the playground at, at lunchtimes. So that's what I mean about being energy-giving. It's about sort of having ideas, refining those ideas, discussing them together. Very different from a group of teachers coming together, maybe in a moderation meeting where they're all having to justify their grade. (laughs) You've got a similar sort of sense of partnership, but a different kind of set of purposes.
0: You also talked earlier about working with academics from Cambridge University. I'm not sure that in some places that's that popular at the moment so what what did you get out of working with Cambridge?
1: So I'd done my master's at Cambridge and subsequently one of the tutors that I'd worked with invited me to be part of a project with the University of Sussex because he'd moved there and our children were involved with this and again that was another kind of we all got on a minibus we went down to Brighton the children were involved. These these were primary children. The primary children were involved with secondary students, and there was a big sort of conference, and they were all contributing. And it was it was, you know, it was one of those things that that there was a lot of excitement about in the school. And when he then subsequently said to me, "Well, there's another project that we're now looking at. We're looking to get some funding to think about schools where they don't label children. Would you be?" willing to be a teacher that we that we um, came to look at and came to visit your classroom and so on. I had to go through a process. I, I ultimately had to apply to do this. It was, quite, it was quite a strain while I was doing it, if I'm honest. I mean, I, I kind of was flattered to be asked, but equally um, having someone come and watching your practice and then writing up the interview with you and then providing you with a transcript and expecting you to look at it and then coming to meetings at the university to sort of um and ah over what it was you were doing felt like navel gazing felt a bit indulgent on the other hand when they started to say of these nine teachers this these are themes that we think we're seeing in your classrooms suddenly that moves into quite a privileged position because you you're working with people that you respect who are mirroring back to you something that you have done perhaps unconsciously and saying we think this is what's going on here and we think this is interesting and actually i mean that book that first book learning without limits there are examples in there of my teaching i I've never properly read them because it's too cringeworthy from my point of view. I can't bear to read anything I've ever written or that anybody else has written. But the, the kind of thinking that they were drawing from that was there were certain ways of being as a teacher that enable and other ways of being that perhaps writes write children off. And they were saying, we, we think there are some enabling things you're doing. That feels very affirming. That's quite encouraging. That's probably one of the reasons that I, unconsciously thought if I take on a school in special measures maybe there's something I can offer I genuinely did not know how I was going to move that school I genuinely did not I mean when I went to visit it in the Christmas holidays as I was starting in the January uh, all the heating was off the cleaners hadn't been in everything looked dreadful I just remember thinking oh my gosh what have I done you know what have I done I don't know how to do this And and I went into the head's office, which was my office, but it didn't feel like it was my office. And on the table, there were all kinds of things for me to sign. And I remember thinking, I've got no, I don't know whether I can sign this or not. And Do I even know if there's any money in the bank? Can I sign this cheque? I don't know. It's only me. It may be that that research, being involved in the research, gave me more courage because I felt as though there were people who'd thought deeply about children who had encouraged me to read a lot about leadership. Now, I did that before I, before I took up that job, I read a lot of books about leadership because I really wanted to understand what were the theories, what was I, what was I getting into and how could I contribute? In the same way that a, a number of years later, I started reading books about how can you give a speech because I've never given speeches and people were asking me to go and talk at things. And I wanted to make sure that I understood the theory of what I was doing. So sometimes maybe things look a lot easier than they are. You have to work hard to look like you're successful, maybe.
0: Good to hear that you suffer from imposter syndrome in the same way as everyone else does as well. Um, but there's, there's something in there that about partnerships again, isn't there? About a university working with a group of schools in order to make the practice of the schools better and, and being able to take a different view on that than, than you know teachers who are... Or even head teachers who have got their noses very firmly against <laughs> the uh, the everyday reality of the school um, as well. So having somebody who can step back and look more objectively, but also really spend some time pulling data together, can, can give you a very different picture.
1: I mean, it's such a luxury. Mm. I used to go for meetings with a team of four researchers monthly for a number of years, actually. And they would be saying to me, what's gone on in the school in the last month? What's happened? And I would just be talking to them like I'm talking to you now. And they would be scribbling down notes. I did keep a journal as well. They asked me to keep a journal, uh, which I did. And that was a journal of... So I'd be looking to the week ahead and I would write down the things that were coming up and the things that I was worrying about and things that were going on. And then the following weekend, I would go back to that and write against that, what actually happened in comparison with what I was worrying about or what I was thinking about. And that was a real discipline because obviously I was working incredibly hard, keeping a journal on top of everything else felt like it was, oh my goodness, you know. But once I'd got into it and started doing it, it kind of felt a bit compulsive. I almost felt like I needed to be doing it. In the holidays as well, I didn't. Uh, And when you were sort of going back to read it, subsequently trying to sort of tease out what was going on and trying to understand a bit more about the leadership decisions I was taking, which as I say, you take them thinking it's just intuitive and it's just, isn't this what everybody would do in this circumstance? And then when you start to keep a journal like that, you realize that there are all kinds of decision points all along the way, where you could choose to do something very different. That taught me a lot about, Uh, my own sort of style of leadership it taught me a lot about the things that really worry me and the things that motivate me and that was helpful especially talking to those colleagues as well sort of listening to the questions they were asking me about things so I kind of learned from that about a a sort of deep relentlessness (laughs) which is uh, to, to try to constantly achieve the goals that I've set you know I'm pretty tough on myself around that I'm not very forgiving of myself if I fall short you know it's painful to fall short and I I worry about this kind of um, thing that teachers are constantly saying in schools to their children about make mistakes it's great to make mistakes I hate making mistakes (laughs) I do you know Uh, and if I do make a mistake or if I particularly if I feel I've upset somebody I feel mortified by that now, I would always try to find harmony if I can find harmony. So all of that's quite hard work. But then also <laughs> the other thing that was quite revealing was that I have a low boredom threshold. So I'm constantly wanting to do new things and try new things. And also that creativity comes in many forms and it isn't about whether you can draw nicely. Creativity and divergent thinking are very close. So there's a lot about my leadership style is about looking at a situation and thinking, okay, what, what could we possibly do here that might be able to make a difference? And it typically wouldn't be something that you would actually find in any of those books that I was telling you I've read before I became a head teacher. And it certainly wasn't something I would have found out on an MPQH.
0: I think the whole thing about reading books is interesting. I, I, I'm a compulsive reader about leadership. I'm always reading. And I don't think I... I've come to the conclusion that I don't read one looking for one thing I'm reading my brain is matching up different things things that that chime things that uh, connect up is that the same with you rather yeah
1: absolutely absolutely I'm not reading with a view to finding the answer I'm reading with a view to understanding the problem and the, and the <laughs> and the problem is uh is not solvable because the the it strikes me the job of Leading a school, the job of being a teacher, frankly, is so complex. All of the relationships, all of the uh, work that you're trying to do to improve outcomes, the environment, the well-being—you know—all of these things are so interrelated. They're so complex. You're never going to get the job done. So, being able to, as I say, being able to understand things like the process of alignment really helped me when I when I came to some sort of understanding of that I thought that's helpful because it helps me to organize what in my head what I'm intuitively trying to do which is realizing there aren't enough hours in the day so what can you do to optimize what you're doing to make to make the greatest effect.
0: I don't think I've ever got to the point of realizing there aren't enough hours in the day. <laughs> I think that's what been, been one of my problems. Um, and I, I love the, the phrase deep relentlessness, even though I can't say it. I think it's a, it's, there's a, that's a lovely phrase. I'm, I'm going to hang on to that one. So thank you for that. So you go from being the head teacher of a very successful school, a centre of excellence, to being the CEO of the Chartered College. Why take the job at the Chartered College?
1: So in the the work of the school, we'd become a teaching school. We were working with more and more schools in our alliance. It was a very big alliance of schools. And we'd written a book. I was working on another book. I was increasingly um, being asked to give lectures across the country, done work around assessment. I was part of various DfE groups. I suppose what I was trying to do from the position of being a head teacher was to influence change whilst showing people look this is how this is how it can it can happen look it's here it's working here's here's a a way of seeing it I can prove to you that there's another way of doing things there's an alternative view of school improvement and it's lived it's real but eventually um, I got to the point of thinking I'm worried that I'm not able to do any of this properly because while I was in meetings in sanctuary buildings whilst having said hello to everybody on the playground in the morning and then rushing back at the end of the day to make sure the site manager was happy or the school staff or to attend a meeting I was constantly being pulled in different directions and I didn't feel as if I was spending enough time with that core school so when I was first a head teacher I knew every child I knew their families Obviously, you know, all the sort of team in the wider community. And gradually, the more that I did, the more I worked with lots of schools, the less I felt that I really knew one school really, really well. And I was worried that somehow that wasn't good enough. Now, I kind of had a decision node. I could have. I could have said, right, well, we're going to create a chain of schools in a bit of the way that we were working informally with that group of schools in the town. I could have potentially looked to see, right, okay, well, Is is this way of working going to work in a secondary school? Do we take a secondary school into a multi-academy trust? Do we have some other primaries? Do we drive that forward? That would have been a very worthwhile thing to do. But I couldn't have done that and had time subsequently to also work nationally and to try to take the ideas forward of raising up the teaching profession and supporting the teacher profession. There wasn't enough lifetime left. (laughs) so I thought what do I do and then the other um, opportunity that well it wasn't really an opportunity it was a kind of sense of duty at the time that I was deciding do I apply for this job at the chartered college there was also the role of HMCI and I guess because I was kind of encouraged to do so by various people I stood for that role to see if I could be successful in that I'm so glad I didn't get that job. I really am so glad because I would have been a terrible HMCI because, well, I just wouldn't have been good at it. Uh, I think Amanda actually has done a great job of being HMCI and it meant that because I'd gone for that role, it also gave me that appetite for something nationally so that then subsequently, when the the, um, the job at the charter college was advertised, I thought, well, maybe this is more me because maybe, well, it definitely is more me, but you know, maybe this is a job I could apply for and, create something from the ground up that could be really genuinely amazing for the profession. Um, and again, that whole notion of working in partnership sort of was coming to the fore in my mind, You know, where would, how could a chartered college emerge? Um, what, how could it work in partnership with others? What would the role be? That felt like a real, again, it was a huge challenge. i got no idea how I was gonna do it, but I did kind of feel this is an opportunity I didn't want to leave my school. Is the reality, you know? I I loved that school and I took that job, I grew that job, as far as I could without. Yeah, I just I I it got to the point where I needed to move on, I guess. So, the charter college was the tempting thing that I succumbed to. I've been there ever since.
0: So you you went to the Chartered college and it was. challenging beginning for the chartered college there were were people that were suspicious let's put it that way there were people that were suspicious about it there were one or two people who had vested interests in not seeing it work etc etc how did you overcome that you know that that feeling that uh, some people were projecting towards the charter i I know there were people that were enthusiastic including me um about the, the the start of the college but how did you overcome the suspicion about it
1: I think we're still working on that to be honest so when I first started again with the benefit of hindsight because we've been allocated funding so Nikki Morgan signed off on her last day as Secretary of State she signed off a grant fund for five million pounds over four years to establish the college which actually when you think about your own school budget is a pittance but if you say to somebody five million pounds over four years you sound like you're very wealthy. So suddenly there were people who were beating a path to my door as a new CEO because they probably thought oh she's probably got a bit of cash to splash about. There were other people who were clearly very worried about the advent of a chartered college given that there'd been a GTC, you know, was this a new GTC by the back door, what was what was the real purpose of it, you know, why would, why would this have been put forward and suggested, you know, there were all kinds of worries about what we were doing. So, for example, the subject associations were very worried, they had been, um, their funding had been withdrawn a number of years earlier, and then suddenly there's this new kid on the block that's got £5 million Pounds over four years. What's that all about? Is, is you know, is the chartered college here to eradicate subject associations? Absolutely not. Some of the unions were really worried. Probably some of them still are to some degree. You know, what's the role of a chartered college? Is it in the union space? Well, no, because we're a professional body, and our whole vision is about building the expertise of teachers through and career pathways and opportunities for them to learn throughout their career and be supported and engaged with. evidence-informed practice and so on but some of the some of the unions were nervous about that because of of the origins of it and where the funding had come from and so on and I think now that we've moved into a stage of being independent that's helpful in that space also I would hope that the track record that we've got is one of absolutely working in partnership you know anybody who wanted to come and see me I always did my best to accommodate them to meet with them to listen to try and understand where we had points in common that we could support each other and <laughs> it's been very strange in the last year not getting on a train because for years I was kind of all over the country That my my schedule was up, utterly punishing you know I, I would be in potentially in Newcastle one day and then try and be in Cornwall the next until someone told me that wasn't possible to achieve and it's like, oh Drat, what can I do? So I hope that what we've done over this period of time is to build trust. We've tried to work with as many people as possible, we've never ever, to my to my best knowledge, done anything that has diminished anyone else, but tried to Um, work alongside people and to find core purposes that that help teachers that's essentially what we're about and so it's been for example with Askell Jeff became a fellow of the chartered college that was a real endorsement of our work that's lovely and on a personal level you know he personally has been very supportive to me I hope at times I'm supportive to him as well you know I think that if if the job of being a head teacher is perceived to be a lonely job the job of being someone like, I don't know, the General Secretary of Ascol or the CEO of the Chartered College, they're quite lonely jobs as well, potentially, except that I, <laughs> I will always talk to people and I've never really been lonely. I've never been lonely, but but the, the responsibility is quite a big one. No, um, yes, yeah, so I think it's all about how you connect with people and how you find people that are willing to listen to you and... That want to help you, but also that you want to help them. There's a mutuality that's really key, I think.
0: So the chartered college is part of a system. Clearly, it's as you said there to to work with the system in partnership wherever possible. We have got a system at the moment, though, that has been fragmented, and it's not not as if we've had a coherent system for years and then suddenly fragmentation has come along, but. Fragmentation has happened even more with the advent of both academies and multi-academy trusts too. What's your view of the system at the moment and what do you think we can do to encourage the partnerships that you're so keen on? So
1: Everything's very new isn't it? If you think about how long local authorities have been in place. It's really only been in the last 12 years that we've really started to um, see a proliferation of multi-academy trusts you know sort of started relatively we had a few big chains and so I think everything is still developing everything is kind of bottoming out if you like so there's some really promising partnerships in places like Birmingham under the leadership of Christine Gilbert in Tower Hamlets with Tracy Smith the opportunity areas in some cases are doing some excellent work, bringing people together. So there was a whole kind of sort of worry about that sort of lost middle tier for a while when we've kind of, we've got diminished authority from the local authorities and we've got emerging maps. And then you've got small schools that might not be part of the system at all. Effectively, you know, they may be more led by their diocese than they are by what would have been their local authority so I think it's interesting it's kind of been it's been quite a rapid evolution if you think about teaching schools for example it's only been just over a decade since teaching schools were thought of and already there's kind of a a new sort of reimagining of what teaching schools might be so everything's quite quick if you think about the timeline of of when schools were first opened um, and where we are now it's clear I think that what's emerging is that local leadership is very helpful for schools head teachers need to have someone up the road that they can speak to it's very useful for that to be for them to be part of a network that is tapped into either government thinking or information about funding you know people need to be part of something way beyond themselves that's it's reassuring but it's also really important in a day-to-day management sort of process of 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 being a school leader to know that you're not suddenly missing out on something that you need to know about because there's so much information that comes out to you as a school leader you can't afford to feel as if maybe you've missed out on an opportunity you didn't even hear about so I think naturally people want to network they find it very helpful to join together I think the, the work that um Emma Knights and Leora Crudus are doing is very helpful in this space. I think the work that the Church of England are doing around leadership and um, the Catholic Church are doing around leadership is very helpful. So those faith communities are helpful. But I I think we naturally seek a bit of coherence and uh, it feels quite dangerous as a school leader to feel like you're out on your own and you might be left out or not included in something that actually makes a massive difference to your budget. (laughs) Quite often money is a really important factor in needing to know what's going on. Um, I think more coherence will emerge. What does it look like? Well, I'm hoping, I hope that actually some of those groups of partnerships that that go beyond the multi-academy trust, where you've got people who are part of MATS but are also part of a local partnership, I hope they begin to be more prevalent. I think there's a lot of promise there, as long as they... Are led equitably and um, you know well led, but there are so many schools, aren't there, across the whole of England? There's so much to do to try and build that coherence, and the geography means that some of the regions are so vast. You know, just to have you know one schools commissioner across a particular region. I mean, I I was on a head teacher board back in the day when they first emerged, uh, and I just remember thinking, well. All we can do is is listen to the advice in the room because we can't possibly know all these schools, none of us. The, the, the region was too too large. And from the from the position of um, the DFE, of course, that if you try and hold all the strings to you, you actually it's 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 impossible. You can't really know what's going on in schools. So that doesn't work either. So I don't know where it's all going to where it's all going to end, but it feels to me as though collaboration is so important it's such a a a needed part of the system if we can move to much more collaboration and and away from unhelpful competition and if we can dial back on the accountability so that we are only as strong as the weakest link in terms of our communities and our children within our schools that feels to be a much better system than one that's driven by striving to outdo the school down the road
0: yeah certainly there seems to be something in there just talking about the you know, the, the weakest link if you like but but also just thinking through the the whole thing about trusts schools everybody mm. refocusing on serving the local area as being their key purpose and, and every child within that area rather than individual bits of the area
1: i think so i think what's happened during the pandemic um we've been, we've seen some fantastic examples of communities working together and communities really needing their schools and schools being champions, actually. It's it's been really inspiring to see in many cases.
0: Yeah, I agree. It it has been really inspiring to see what schools have done for their local communities. I think it's been amazing. So as we come towards the end of what's been a fascinating podcast, actually really interesting, uh, Alison, I always ask everybody this question, which is the question about that leadership can be a tough job. You, you spoke about it earlier, and I, and I know you talk to lots of people, I know you're very creative and I know you fill your hours in the, in the day uh, extremely well, but it is a, on, at times a stressful job and a difficult job too. So how do you step away? What do you do to take off leadership for a little bit? So
1: family is really important. I've got two daughters and it's great to spend time with family. I read a lot. Most recently, I've been a full-time carer because during the pandemic, my husband and I thought it would be great to, to think about the garden as a sort of rewilding center, you know looking at wildlife and so he hung up all kinds of bird feeders in one of the trees outside in our garden and we had spent lots of time looking at wonderful birds and woodpeckers and all sorts, squirrels came to the garden. And then in November he was filling the bird feeders and he fell off the ladder and he broke his leg and his ankle. So actually I haven't got any time really to do anything other than work and provide food on a tray to someone with his leg in the air upstairs. But yeah, family, family is everything. And I think one of the the times when I've found any part of my job really difficult have been times when there's something else going on in the family. Because there's only, there's that kind of that equilibrium that you can gain when, when you've got that wider sort of support network around you. But when something happens, I don't mean John falling out of a tree, he's getting on with that, he's fine. But, you know, when something happens and you're worried about family, then it can be very difficult to also give out everything you need to give out as a leader. Because there's a lot that you do as a leader, which is about supporting other people, which is about listening, which is about absorbing other people's anxieties and and kind of mirroring back to them saying no it's, it's going to be all right everything's going to be all right it's difficult to do that if you're not sure yourself that everything's going to be all right so
0: you said reading do you read do you always read leadership books or do you read I was going to say for pleasure but reading leadership yes. book can be for pleasure too but do, yes. you, do you read other things apart from leadership books
1: yes I um so <laughs> interestingly this morning I posted on twitter because it's World Book Day today, and I, I'm reading. Actually, it's a child a children's book. And you're going to ask me what it is, and it's completely gone out of my head. But anyway, I'm, I'm reading this book, uh, recently published, got a Waterstones account, and I just remember thinking, oh, this looks really fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. And then somebody on Twitter, I'm only halfway through, and someone on Twitter has said, oh, how did you feel out? How did you feel when you when you worked out that the central protagonist actually isn't a boy; it's a girl? I was like, oh, well, you've just told me now because I hadn't worked. <laughs> It's called the boy at the back of the class, that's what it is. So you can see why I might have got confused about the gender of the protagonist. I've been doing a lot of reading during the pandemic because it's a way of escaping the awful reality of not knowing what's going on. I mean, we've all put on a good face, but the reality is it's scary. So being able to read books about all kinds of different things um, just takes you somewhere else in your mind. It's a good escapism. And, you know, I watch things like Netflix, like everybody else does. I I think, you know, wherever anybody can find a a bit of um, opportunity to get away from the news. I've tried not to watch the news very much. It's all a bit grim. Hmm. We can't afford to be dwelling on that, can we really, I think. I mean, you need to know what's going on, but you don't need to dwell in it too much.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Alison, for... thank you so much for joining us today it's been absolutely fantastic I've really enjoyed it I really enjoyed listening both to the the little parts of that journey that I haven't heard before actually so I was really interested in hearing that too but also your opinions on the system thank you so much it's been a real joy listening to you
1: thank you